Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is Class Rules, How the Middle Class Rules School. Our opening song is by Hoobastank off of the 1998 album They Sure Don't Make Basketball Shorts Like They Used To. This is Educated Fool. Recently, a criminal investigation into fraud in the testing regimes for college entry revealed that wealthy people buy advantages. Many of us surely simply shrugged. What's new? Folks with money look to buy the path they and their children tread. We seem to accept this even if we are, on occasion, outraged. And it can't surprise you if I say that the middle class has advantages that the working class does not enjoy. That's the whole story of class hierarchies in the first place. But perhaps it's surprising that these advantages are mobilized in our public schools on a daily basis. Our public education system is the institution that has been sold to us as the great levelizer of social and economic opportunity. Well, here's another study that demonstrates how much that really isn't true. Call it another myth of democracy in America. Instead, class rules in the classroom. Joining me today in the WFHB studio is Jessica Calarco, assistant professor of sociology at Indiana University and author of Negotiating Opportunities, How the Middle Class Secures Advantages in School, published by Oxford University Press. In her book, Calarco argues that the middle class has a negotiated advantage in school. Drawing on five years of ethnographic fieldwork, Calarco traces that negotiated advantage from its origins at home to its consequences at school. Beginning in the home, working class students learn to follow rules, to respect authority, and work through problems independently. And in this way, they also learn they earn their failure. But middle-class students learn to challenge rules and request assistance, accommodations, and attention in excess of what is fair or required. The institution is there to serve them, and their teachers, also on the whole from the middle class, typically grant those requests, creating advantages for those middle-class students. While the middle class mobilizes strategies of influence, the working class bows low to offer strategies of deference. Here's another way our schools are separate and unequal. What is to be done? Oh, and listen up, purveyors of the grit, grift. The poor and working classes are already gritting it out. It's the middle and upper classes that always lean on the system for help. And now, Class Rules with Jessica Calarco on Interchange on WFHB. Jessica Calarco, welcome to Interchange. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, Jessica, did you want to slide the word unfairly into that title, negotiating opportunities, how the middle class unfairly secures advantages in school? 
I mean, certainly that's the implication of the book, is that these are not fair advantages by any stretch. That's yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, this is uh, a work of uh, like an ethnographic study, and we've we've uh, conf- confronted that here before in Interchange. We had a show with uh, uh, Ju Young Lee uh, doing work on the individual and community health effects of gunshot victimization in Philadelphia. Uh, but let's have a refresher course, right? What is eth- ethnography, and how is it valued in academia or in policy studies? Absolutely. So ethnography is essentially where you are going out into the community, where you are getting to know a group of people and usually following them over time and trying to understand their world from their perspective, not just what they say, as you might get in an an interview, but how they live their lives and how their day-to-day lives play out for them and the kinds of consequences that their actions have uh, for them and for the people around them. Well, so uh, give us a little background on the ethnographic research that you did for this book. Sure. So for this book, I really wanted to understand what happens when you put kids from different social class backgrounds into the same classrooms with the same teachers, with the same peers, uh, and have them interacting together. Do they learn from each other? Do you still see the same kinds of inequalities that we've seen in other studies? And so I found a school where I was able to look at kids from different social class backgrounds within that same, living in the same neighborhoods and communities, going to the same schools, being in the same classrooms with the same teachers and a public school. I wanted a public school specifically so that it wouldn't be a private school or a charter school where parents were choosing to send their kids, that it was just by virtue of the fact that they lived in this community, in this neighborhood, they all went to the same school. Uh, and I found a school, it's predominantly white, um, but it does have uh, lower income Asian, uh, Afri- or a few African Americans, a uh, few lower income Latino families, and a few higher income Asian American families, uh, but then a, a, a good mix of middle class and working class white families uh, that I was able to look at in terms of their social class backgrounds. And I started with a group of kids, about 100 kids, when they were in third grade, uh, and then followed them over time through fifth grade, and then went back and did some follow-up research when they were in middle school in seventh grade. Mm, so you were focusing on uh, pretty young kids then. Uh, so how does that work when you try to get information out of kids? Sure. <laughs> I mean, so certainly I think in the classroom, they were a little bit wary of me at first in terms of who is this person? What are they trying to do here? Some of them asked me if I was a teacher, a teacher in training. Uh, but I think I tried to especially early on, show them that they could trust me. I wasn't there to get them in trouble. I wasn't there to tell them. And they would test that sometimes. They would like punch each other in front of me in the hallway. Not it particularly hard, but enough to kind of look at me and say, is this gonna is this gonna get me in trouble? And I would sort of turn a blind eye and say, that's, that's not what I'm here for. Mm-hmm. I'm here to learn from you. I'm here to learn about you, um, as opposed to uh, trying to judge you in any way. And I think it was the same with the teachers, trying to make sure that they understood that I wasn't there to judge them or evaluate them, but rather to learn from them mm. uh, at the same time. So you were there a pretty long time though, but not constantly. Sure, I mean, I think with ethnographic research, you're not a video camera. Um, right. The idea is to get a sense of the kinds of interactions and to go back frequently enough enough to be able to understand how things play out over time. But it also takes a lot of time to write up field notes based on the kinds of observations that happen in the field, usually three to four hours for every hour that you spend in the field. And that's not even capturing everything. But essentially, you're taking what you saw and crafting it into stories, uh, some of which show up in the book that are sort of these like almost vignettes that describe certain interactions and certain people, how they look, how they act, how they respond. Uh, And that takes a lot of time to write those up well and to be able to analyze them. Mm. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. My guest is Jessica Calarco, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Indiana University and author of Negotiating Opportunities, How the Middle Class Secures Advantages in School. That's published by Oxford University Press. Uh, So let's uh, talk a little bit about how we define middle class. Middle Mm -hmm. class and working class are your your two um, pots of students that you're working with. There There are other 
versions. Uh, I mean, cer- certainly there are uh, impoverished children as well, uh, and so lower class, you have upper middle class, all these things uh, we can parse out, but you have two in particular. Sure. So I focus on sort of two broadly defined groups. I call them in the book middle class and working class, but really they encompass a wider range of socioeconomic differences than that. Uh, the middle class, uh, the predominantly white middle class that I'm talking about in the book really en- encompasses kids whose parents have, who have at least one parent with a college degree, a four-year college degree, and also that works in a professional or managerial type job. So these were teachers and engineers. They were office managers. They were, in some cases, lawyers or doctors. Um, so they kind of ranged from middle to middle class, kind of solidly middle class to upper middle class uh, in some of these families. Whereas the working class families, those were families that typically the parents had at most a high school diploma. There were a few that had maybe a year or two of community college, um, a few that were high school dropouts. They worked as in food service. They worked in transportation. They worked in construction. Uh, they worked as uh, home daycare providers in some cases. Um, and so their lives looked different on a lot of different dimensions. I talk about it in terms of class but it was correlated with things like income as well, um, and also just the way that their lives look day to day. The amount of most of the working class families were what we might call in sociology sort of settled living families. They weren't often struggling day to day to put food on the table, hmm. um, but that didn't mean that they had a lot of extra in terms sure. of money or that they um, had a particularly high level of status in the kinds of jobs that they mm-hmm. had. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think at the beginning you note the the actual income differences between the two classes pretty extreme, though. Sure. I mean, certainly if in terms of the averages, uh, thinking in sort of the thirty-five to forty thousand dollars range for the for the working class families, and closer to seventy-five thousand dollars a year for the for the middle to upper middle class families, and and ranging even higher than that for some of the families. So there were pretty stark differences, and this is certainly in different geographic areas that's more possible than others. And sure. the larger sort of suburban areas do tend to have that kind of socioeconomic diversity even within one community because you're drawing, busing kids in from lots of different neighborhoods in one large geographic area. It's not something we typically find in urban settings, um, but is much more common in suburb- suburban and rural areas. Mm. Uh, so I read a review of the book where it said the big theoretical takeaway that middle class and primarily white students reproduce inequality as they navigate, as they navigate institutions like schools more successfully because they actively exert pressure on the institution. It's something so elegantly simple that it seems it should have been obvious. Well, why wasn't it obvious that little Johnny and Jenny were agents reproducing class advantages and disadvantages? Sure. I think we don't like to think about the way that kids might be playing a part in this process. We tend to think of kids as innocent sort of pawns in the larger game that parents and teachers play. It's it's easy, easier politically and sort of socially to say the parents are to blame. We need to be saying that the parents just need to be more involved or the teachers need to be doing things differently. But sometimes that ignores the way that kids are actually engaging in the classroom and the consequences that those kinds of interactions have, especially when they are, as I talk about in the book, sort of demanding things and being coached by their parents to demand things that go well beyond what's fair or required. Mm. Well, you say that the school itself is a middle-class institution, right? So for positing it's a middle-class institution, it's bound to be useful to the middle-class students who are there and the middle-class parents that are there. Shouldn't be a surprise, I suppose. Sure. And that's part of it, I think, is that there's this, and I talk about in the book, there's sort of, part of this is about what I call cultural matching and and what sociology calls cultural matching. This idea that the institution is designed by middle class people and kind of run by middle class ideals. And part of it is that the middle class kids understand that and they learn that at home, that what the school expects and what the teachers expect. But there's also a piece of it that goes beyond just that kind of matching with the middle class kids being, having the entitlement, having the sense of power that they're able and willing to push back and demand things that go beyond even what the teachers want to provide, whether that's, uh, 
extra checking of their tests or extra time on tests or uh, a chance to do their projects a different way than the teachers want them to do or having the, the teacher give 10 minutes of attention to them so they can tell a story about something that was happening at home. Um, and so the way that the middle class kids were able to negotiate these kind of extra advantages beyond what the teachers often wanted to provide and weren't willing to take no for an answer in many cases and how the teachers felt like they had to say yes to those requests uh, because of the potential risks of pushback from the middle class parents and from the middle class kids. Mm. Uh, that that's really where this sort of extra negotiated advantage comes from. Mm. So the kids operating just like little lawyers or, um, you know, they're just going to get what they want. Absolutely. And there are even times when the teachers would sort of joke with the middle class kids, like, you sound like a lawyer or you're going to be a great lawyer when you grow up because they had these negotiating skills. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I have two kids. They're pretty good at negotiating. <laughs> but I'm in the middle class, too. And I, I'm guilty. I was reading the book. I was like, oh, my God, I'm guilty of all these things. I'm a terrible parent. I'm a terrible person. That's how it feels sometimes, right? Sure. Yeah, because you don't do it on purpose. I mean, you have to, again, as I think you say throughout, you, you do have to check yourself a little bit and say, what's this all for? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's part of the fact that we live in such segregated communities mm -hmm. where we tend to live with other people and have our kids go to school with other people who look like us and whose lives look like ours. And for the middle class parents, especially, they don't feel like their actions have any consequences for inequalities. They feel like they're competing mm -hmm. against other kids and other parents who look just like them. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's not this sense that the actions that they're taking might have these broader consequences or these broader broader effects in terms of who is getting the bulk of the advantages in school and who's crafting their own educational experiences to benefit them while other kids aren't given that same benefit of the mm. doubt. Well, it sounded throughout as if the middle class kids who um, who are, I, I was going to say needy, but I might, uh, might say pushy as much as anything else, right, are, are the actual troublemakers in some mm. sense. Not, that, not even that you'd call them troublemakers necessarily, but that they're taking up so much time and, and monopolizing the time from the, the teacher and the other students. Absolutely. Certainly in terms of the amount of time that they took up from the teachers and the way that they demanded teachers to, to reorient the whole classroom environment around their wants and their needs, they certainly did cause trouble in some cases. And the teachers did get frustrated. Uh, <laughs> they, they often felt like they had to say yes, but they still, they would often vent to me as the only other adult in the room, kind of in the back of the room about parents constantly emailing them or kids who were constantly asking for things. Um, and just having that chance to vent was sometimes helpful for the teachers. Mm -hmm. And the teachers themselves are, are primarily middle class as well. Yes. So they plausibly are being that kind of parent also uh, if potential. they had children. Yeah, and some of them talked about that. And I had a couple of, um, some of the parents were also either current teachers or former teachers and, and kind of acknowledged that tension between I want my kids to be independent, but I feel like it's really, but I get that there's value in this. And uh, uh, one of the parents, she was a former middle school teacher, um, and she told me, she was talking about why she always drives her kids' homework back to school for them when mm. they leave it at home. And she's like, I don't want to do this. I want my kids to be independent, but I don't want them to suffer. And it was this idea that just forgetting a homework was enough to count as suffering um, and, and that that kind of low bar for never wanting their kids to fail, never wanting their kids to experience kind of any hardship um, was, was really a driving force for a lot of the working for a lot of the middle class parents. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah, sure. It's time for a break. Uh, this is Measuring Cups by Andrew Bird off of the 2005 release Andrew Bird and the Mysterious Production of Eggs. More with Jessica Calarco on how the middle class harms the working class in the hallowed democratic institution of public education. Stay with us. Get out your measuring cups And we'll play a new game Come to the front of the class And we'll measure your brain We'll give you a complex And we'll give it a name 
Get out your measuring cups and we'll play a new game. Can't have the cream when a crop and the cream are the same. Liquid gas, no more than the glass will contain. When you talk about the hand of glory, a tale that's rather grim and gory. Is it just another children's story? It's been declawed. The tales of brothers grim and gory. Backpack on your shoulder. Be the good little soldier. Take your places now, 'cause we're all predisposed. Measuring cups, play a new game. Front of the class, measure your brain. Give you a complex and we'll. Rather grim and gory. Is it just another children's story? It's been declawed. The tales of brothers grim and gory. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today our show is Class Rules, How the Middle Class Rules School. And our guest is Jessica Calarco, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Indiana University and author of Negotiating Opportunities, How the Middle Class Secures Advantages in School. In our first segment, we were just talking, I guess, kind of fleshing out the book and and, uh, the idea that the middle class, uh, middle class parents, middle class kids all sort of work together to secure uh, all sorts of advantages for themselves. Mm, I don't think we said unintentionally, but without the idea they were harming other people. Um, so let's look a little bit uh, about how kids learn those uh, skills, those negotiating strategies, and how other kids don't learn those particular strategies. So we have working class and middle class strategies here. Sure. So the middle class parents essentially are coaching their kids. They would often use this language of advocacy, that I want my kids to be their own advocates in school. I want them to treat their teachers as resources. That was another thing I heard a lot, that the teacher is there for their child, uh, that the teacher should be the one. um, They would often tell their kids, don't turn to your peers for help. Turn to the teacher instead, because they're the one who wrote the test. They're the one who knows what's on the test. Um, And so it was this sense of being very strategic uh, with their kids, and even in some cases, role playing with them, especially for the parents of very shy kids or who were a little bit reluctant to acknowledge when they needed help or when they uh, wanted extra stuff in the classroom, really being kind of taking the time, sitting down with their kids, role playing, talking them through it and and stressing how important it was uh, for kids to speak up in the classroom and to demand these kinds of advantages. Mm. 
So these are things like, uh, as you said, support seeking, um, assertiveness, consequence avoidance. That's mm-hmm. my favorite one, really. And prioritizing uh, academic success over other things you might do in a class. Absolutely. I mean, the, the middle class parents, and not surprisingly, given the system that we live in today, cared a lot about grades. They cared mm-hmm. a lot about their kids. They wanted to make sure that their kids did well in school. And they defined doing well in school as, as really all A's, especially in elementary school um, mm-hmm. and even into middle school. Just this sense that like... Elementary school. Uh, <laughs> A's in elementary school. Exactly. Good, good finger painting. Uh, no, exactly. Exactly. I guess and they're I, a little bit advanced beyond finger painting at third grade, but... But sure, but they, but it, with projects or tests or whatever it was, they wanted to, and they were often uh, using the online grade systems to check how well their kids were doing, checking in daily or checking in weekly to make sure that their kids were staying on track, contacting the teachers constantly, mm-hmm. but in, but encouragingly or increasingly encouraging their kids to speak up for themselves and to, to kind of watch out for their own grades mm. in a way that was uh, asking the teachers for help and asking the teachers for kind of extra advantages in the classroom. The school also prompts that kind of activity. We do have grade checking uh, capacities, and so the school. Is middle classing itself, I suppose, right? Oh, absolutely. And it's certainly structured in ways to facilitate this kind of behavior, um, whether it's giving out teachers' email addresses to parents or uh, encouraging kids. And and certainly the teachers did encourage kids to ask for help. Hmm. Um, But there there was a line between asking for help and asking for some of these other things um, in terms of asking for the special rules or especially getting out of consequences. If Mm -hmm. they broke the rules, who was going to talk their way out of punishment? And the the parents often helping their kids or coaching their kids to avoid responsibility even Mm. when they might have otherwise gotten in trouble. Now, the working class kids were different. Yes, in the sense that the parents, they were worried about how their kids would be perceived. And this isn't surprising given the way that our society treats people who are in a lower class position in the sense that we look down on people who are dependent, especially if they are dependent on things like welfare or if they are dependent on government benefits or if they are seen as not working hard enough. Uh, The way that we sort of stigmatize working class people and lower class people in our society doesn't help with the situation. And because of that, the working class parents and, and, and the working class white parents in this study really tried to sort of defend their identity and defend their kids' uh, respectability uh, by coaching their kids to be respectful, to be responsible, uh, to work hard for themselves, to not burden the teacher with these kinds of requests. They worried about, and kind of thinking back often on their own time in school, they worried about how teachers would judge kids who asked for too much help, or especially those who tried to challenge the teacher or push back in some way. And so they cautioned their kids, don't speak up. If there was one uh, child, Amelia, that I talk about in the book who came home with a comment on her report card that she's like, I just, I I don't, I don't think the the teacher had said that she didn't work hard enough, even though she'd gotten an A in math for the semester. Mm -hmm. Um, So so she had an A and then a report card, there was a note that said she wasn't working hard enough. And so she she took it to her dad, her uh, single father, who uh, was a working class dad. and, And he said, don't ask the teacher about it. Don't give her a hard time. Clearly, it's there for a reason. And even if it's not, this isn't your place to speak up uh, in the sense. And, and she sort of internalized that and said, this isn't like I didn't like it. I wasn't happy about it when I interviewed her after fifth grade. She's like, this this made me really upset because I thought I did really well. And mm-hmm. I thought I worked really hard and I didn't understand why I got that comment. Uh, but she didn't feel comfortable pushing back. She mm-hmm. didn't feel comfortable speaking up or asking the teacher why that, that comment was there. Mm-hmm. Did you ask the teacher? I did not in that case. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, certainly I have the, the, the records from the students. And my sense is that it could have been a mistake or it could have been um, that the teacher perceived her behavior differently than, mm-hmm. than she mm-hmm. did. Yeah. So there is, uh, again, an, a, a teacher bias plausibly, right, against the working class students also. Sure. And especially in the sense that the teachers are are looking for certain types of behaviors. They expect students, especially because this is a middle class institution, they expect students to speak up, to sort of be that squeaky wheel. At the um, same time, not wanting them to at be. At the same time, not wanting them to be. I mean, certainly right. c- because it takes extra time for teachers sure. to respond to all right. those requests. Right. But they also rely on students, especially when they need help, 
um, to speak up for themselves, and they sort of assume that kids will um, will speak up if they're if they're struggling. Mm-hmm. And because of that, they often mistook struggling behavior, especially from the working class students, for off-task behavior. Mm. Uh, there were a number of really heartbreaking situations that I observed in the classroom where a kid would be struggling with something. Maybe he'd even be raising his hand, waiting for the teacher to help him. And the teacher was helping all the middle class students who got up and went over to the teacher physically while this kid just sits in the back of the classroom, raising his hand, waiting patiently, raising his hand, clearly struggling with the material. And eventually he gives up. He puts his hand down. He falls off task. Maybe he starts playing with something in his mm. desk. And at that point, the teacher sees him and yells at him and mm. tells him, you should be paying attention. And so it was those situations where it was like, it was clear he was following the rules. He was trying to raise his hand. He was trying to be patient. But ultimately, he's the one who got punished in the end. Hmm. And those situations were really the, probably the most heartbreaking. Yeah. The, you opened the book with something, um, uh, uh, just an example, really, of, of this kind of situation where um, a, a, a student asks help on a math, math mm-hmm. problem. Uh, a working class student asks for help, and the teacher gives it, um, but doesn't give it in a way that it helps the kid really. Uh, and the kid does not really understand and does not ask for further assistance and then just struggles more. Another student, I don't remember if the student interrupted the, the mm-hmm. conversation or not. You can tell the rest of the story. Sure, sure. So it starts yeah. with a, with an example from Jesse, who was a working class student that was struggling with this math problem. And he raised his hand and the teacher went over to him and she sort of gave him some sort of, it was a test. So she didn't give him a ton of, a ton of explanation, right. but just sort of said, here's what you th- should be thinking about. Um, and he tried to work through it on his own and really just didn't get it. Um, and then another, another student, I think it was Ellen, uh, was a middle class student that kind of also called out for help and the teacher went over to help Ellen and she kind of asked a series of follow-up questions that got kind of additional information right. from the teacher. It was sort of like, well, am I supposed to do it this way? Oh, but but does that mean this? Right. Until she kind of got enough information to really puzzle through the problem. Yeah. And when I talked to Jesse about it later in an interview, I kind of asked him about this particular scenario and he, he actually assumed that he didn't get the answer right because he wasn't smart enough. Mm-hmm. He assumed that Ellen must have just been smart enough to get this answer right and that he didn't um, yeah. and that she must have been smart enough to get the teacher to work with. And so it was this like this sense that he kind of internalized this idea that, well, I am asking for help. I am doing this, but I'm not, I'm still, I must just not be smart enough to get it, even Mm -hmm, if I do ask mm -hmm. for help. Whereas they defined what help looks like um, and how to ask for help and what was the amount of help that was appropriate, Mm -hmm. um, especially during tests. The working class kids worried about sort of wanting to feel like they were doing their own work. Um, There Mm -hmm. was, uh, there were other things that I often saw with um, middle class kids sort of lining up at the teacher's desks, waiting to have their tests checked for them before they turn them in. Sort of like, Mm -hmm. will you check this for mm-hmm. me. Um, and there were a number of working class students that I talked to in interviews that would just say, that's that's cheating. Like, right, that's not right. okay. That's not your work if the teacher's checking your <laughs> test for you. And so they drew these right. moral lines around things, too. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. My guest is Jessica Calarco, author of Negotiating Opportunities, How the Middle Class Secures Advantages in School. Uh, so you talk throughout about how this is kind of, uh, maybe it's a distinction of, of character education versus what was the other, what did you call the other, what's middle class it's learning? Sure. I mean, essentially it's it's the, the the working class parents are stressing good character while the middle class parents are really stressing good grades or success in school kind of what they valued most and it's not to say that the working class parents didn't care about their kids doing well in school a lot of them had chosen to live in the school district because they knew it had good schools because they cared about their kids education that they wanted their kids to do well but they didn't put the same stress on grades mm-hmm. they said you know what if they get a C that's okay I'm not going to stress about it like that's 
if that's the work that they can do, if they're working hard enough and they're being responsible and they're doing their own work and that's what they can do, I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. And certainly a lot of them wanted their kids to go on to college, but they were okay if that was community college first um, instead of going straight to a four-year school. Um, And so it was just sort of a a slightly less stressed way Mm -hmm. uh, of looking at education. But really, good character for them was what they cared a lot about. They saw their primary role as parents. They sort of said, you know what, it's the teacher's responsibility to make sure that um, the kids are learning and that, that the material is covered. It's my responsibility as a parent to make sure that my kid is respectful and responsible and hardworking. And that's kind of how they defined their role as parents um, at home, mm-hmm. whereas the the middle class parents really saw themselves as partners with the teachers in their mm-hmm. kids' education. They mm-hmm. sort of said, like, I know just as well as the teacher what my kid needs academically, and I'm going to step in and try to manage the situation to make sure that they not only do well in elementary school, but that that sets them up to be in the right track in, in middle school and in the right tracks in high school sure. so that they're taking the AP classes so that they can go to the right college. And the middle-class kids would tell me, even at 10 years old, that which which often Ivy League college they were going to go to. <laughs> right. um, and so it was sort of this idea of having this, this track set for them that was deeply driven by academics in a way that the working class kids, it, that that wasn't the, the, the primary focus mm. at home. Well, I passed over, I wanted to just say about uh, Jesse and the idea mm. of this un, like unequal, um, uh, I guess, consequence of that action or the action of not getting more help is that Ellen gets a lot of help and pl- plausibly mm, the answers, mm-hmm. uh, having these conversations with the teachers. And Jesse does not get the answer and then gets an incomplete or gets a, a bad grade on something. So neither kid perhaps knew enough to get the answer right or might have get, gotten the answer right given the same exact responses. And one of the things you talk about, I think you call it the inconsistent curriculum, mm-hmm. but there's inconsistencies throughout, but uh, the inconsistency of how teachers you know, respond to students generally. Absolutely. And it's hard for teachers to be perfect. Oh my gosh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In every single situation. But there's there's so much room for ambiguity in the classroom, especially around these kinds of expectations, because there are some times when the teachers really want the kids to be sitting quietly, working independently. But there's other situations where they um, want them to ask for more help, where they want them to ask for help from their peers and not from the teachers. And those shifting expectations really create the kind of environment where it's so easy for kids, especially the working class kids, to worry about getting in trouble. Mm -hmm. Uh, because when the rules aren't clear, when those expectations aren't explicit, they default to the, their, their sort of class-based orientations around, I don't want to get in trouble. I don't yeah. want to upset quiet, the teacher. Be quiet. Don't uh, rock the boat. Exactly. Yeah. And they were they were so – one of the most fascinating things to me was how attentive the working class kids were to their teachers' moods and temperaments. Mm. They knew when the teacher was upset. And they were really cautious to never make trouble, to never make a joke. So, I mean, so, certainly there's jokesters and kids that like sure. to kind of riff with the teacher a little mm-hmm. bit, um, both in the working class and the middle class. Um, but the working class kids were really cautious mm-hmm. about trying not to upset the teacher, especially when they knew that the teacher had already gotten upset at another mm-hmm. kid or was already annoyed with another kid. But that ended up actually discouraging them even more from asking for help because they would see the teacher getting increasingly annoyed with these middle class kids that were asking questions and pushing buttons and just not noticing that the teacher was upset and frustrated. Well, not and, caring, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> and so they would, and so the working class kids would say, well, in this situation, I'm clearly not going to ask for help, even if they really needed it. Yeah, because the foul is going to get called on them. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That, yeah it's, it's demonstrated over and over again that they're the ones who are going to get dinged. Yes. Uh, Let's take another break. This is Expectations by Bell and Sebastian off of their debut album, Tiger Milk. Stay with us for more on how middle-class students ask for assistance, accommodation, and attention and get it when Interchange returns.
do Tell your mum what to expect She says it's right out of the blue Do you want to work at Debenhams? Cause that's what they expect Starting laundry and Doris is your supervisor And the headset that you always wear A queer one from the start For careers you say you want to be Remembered for your heart Your obsession gets you known Throughout the school for being strange Making life-size models of The velvet underground in play In the queue for lunch they take the piss You got no appetite And the rumour is you never go With boys and you are tight So they jab you with a fork while you're cleaning up the mess, the teacher's looking up your scars. Hey, you've been used. Are you calm, settle down? Write a song, I'll sing along. Soon you will know that you are sane. You're on top of the world again. back to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Today I'm joined in the WFHB studio with, or by, excuse me, Jessica Calarco, author of Negotiating Opportunities, How the Middle Class Secures Advantages in School. And Jessica is also an assistant professor of sociology at Indiana University. So we've covered a fair amount of ground. We've talked about how kids learn from their parents to negotiate in the classroom, how working class kids learn to defer to the expertise of the, of the uh, teacher, but also the environment is one of uh, a kind of authoritarian institution in the first place. So be quiet, don't rock the boat, listen and do what you're told. Uh, and told how frustrating that is for a lot of students who try really hard to play the game, try to be patient, try to raise their hands, try to get this help they need, and then don't get it because middle class Johnny and Jenny are throwing themselves in front of it. Mm. That's frustrating, and I, I, I can understand that. It's, uh, it's an interesting part about the book is to imagine that frustration, you know, to imagine failing when trying so hard. Um, you know, throughout the book, um, 
you do paint the working class students in a very sympathetic light. Mm-hmm. And I'd have to say that, Jessica, I didn't like any middle class students or parents mm-hmm. in this book, including myself. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, because it, it's not nice, it's not friendly, it doesn't feel good. Uh, and I felt terrible for the situation that the, the working class kids had to go through. But you like them also. Um, for their, again, for their, their character mm-hmm. as much as anything else. And, and so when I asked earlier about, you know, how uh, the parents inculcate character, and we, we kind of skipped over the middle class in terms of what is important to them. Mm. But what's that character like? You know, how are they developing a particular kind of character for their, their kids? Sure. And I, I, mean, I think they would tell me in interviews, the parents and the kids to some extent, too, that they cared about good character. But they saw that good character often came into tension with good grades. <laughs> and that right. there were just times when you had right. to prioritize one over the other. Right. That sometimes right. it, if they didn't get the grade that they wanted, um, that being willing to be pushy. If they their kid didn't get into the gifted program when they wanted them to mm-hmm. or that they didn't um, – get the right teacher that they mm-hmm. wanted, that they felt that was the best k- teacher for their particular kid, that they were willing to sort of put that aside and be yeah. pushy and speak up and demand things from the institution that um, that other parents didn't see as appropriate in terms of mm-hmm. demands. So there's a, a kind of individualism here on two levels. One, an individualism that says, do, do, do it yourself, you know, fail yourself, succeed yourself, you know, don't ask for help. But if you have to ask for help, do it the right way, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but be individual about it. But then there's the individualism of self-serving, right? That's yeah. individualist too. That You are here for me, not for all these other kids in the classroom, right? Yeah, and it definitely is two different sort of manifestations of individualism in that sense. I mean, I think certainly the working class parents were somewhat more collectivistic, especially when they talked about teachers. Um, mm. They would talk about teachers, and when I would sort of ask them, like, what's the teacher's role? And they sort of acknowledged that the teacher is there not just for my kid, but for all kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and that my, my kid doesn't deserve any more of the teacher's time mm. than any other kid in the class. And that really it's up to the teacher to make decisions about how much help each kid's get, each kids get or um, kind of what's, what's best for the class as a whole. Whereas the middle class parents really did kind of take a much more kind mm-hmm. of classically individualistic approach to my, I'm going to maximize the amount of attention and, and resources mm-hmm. that my kid can get in the classroom. And certainly not to the same extent across. There were variations among the middle class sure. parents. Um, and certainly some of them were a little bit more insistent than others on those kinds of things. But that was more the orientation was that I'm my kid's best advocate and I can teach my right. kid to advocate for themselves. And there's this is a competitive world and mm-hmm. we're competing for a limited set of slots often in top colleges and that, right. that that's kind of the best way to get there. But you just have to buy those slots. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so you point to three particular modes of middle class negotiation, seeking assistance, seeking accommodation, and seeking attention. Let's take those in turn. Uh, so how, how is it that they seek assistance? Sure. So the, the middle class kids, they seek attention sort of proactively and persistently and without being willing to take no for an answer, in mm-hmm. the sense that if they are struggling to understand a question on a test, or if they uh, can't quite, uh, if, like, if, if they can't quite get something to work the way that they want it to, or if they have a question about something and how the world works, they're gonna keep asking. Uh, they're not going to wait with their hand raised. They're oftentimes going to go up and approach the teacher, often interrupt the teacher, even if they're talking with another adult, and they're gonna keep asking. So there, was, there were times, especially at the beginning of the school day, where some middle-class kid would have questions about what's the schedule for today, and they would just keep peppering the teacher mm-hmm. with more and more 
more questions until they got the full information that they wanted. Um, and so it was this very sort of proactive, persistent, not taking no for an answer kind of approach. Whereas the working class kids, they did sometimes ask for help. Uh, oftentimes after they'd seen work, middle class kids sort of successfully ask previous questions, they would say, okay, I, I have a question too. Mm-hmm. Um, but they would oftentimes find ways to work around that, whether that was asking a peer instead of the teacher or trying to figure it out on their own first. Uh, they really tried to do as much as they could by themselves or asking a friend. The teachers would often say things like, ask three before me. Some of the teachers had that rule. And the, mm. the working class kids were careful to, fi- to follow that, to mm. say, I'm going to check with other people before I bother the teacher because clearly she doesn't want me running to her with every <laughs> right. every possible question. Right. So, um, and so accommodation is one in, uh, in which you're kind of always asking for more time, uh, extension on your paper, things of this nature. Sure. And, and and kind of even beyond that, like asking for like ways to make the school day just more tailored to their individual interests. Mm. There was this one case where... Um, a kid, I think I call him Hunter in the in the in the book. Um, he had a sprained ankle, but he wanted to play kickball with his class anyway in gym class. And he was, so he goes through this like 15 minute back and forth negotiation with the gym teacher. Oh, first it's, can I kick if I kick with my right foot instead of my left foot? And then it's, or, and, or can I um, play outfield and, but then have someone else run for me when I run the bases? And she ended up calling the nurse and checking with the principal and just kind of going back and forth mm. through this whole set of negotiations to give this kid what he wanted with the special circumstances to be able to play kickball. Or in some cases, those accommodations were getting out of trouble. Um, If they got caught running in the hallways or they got caught talking in class when they weren't supposed to be, the the middle class kids really often had excuses. And this this came up especially with homework. Uh, If they forgot their homework, if they didn't do their projects the way that they were supposed to, they always had an excuse that they could sort of talk their way out of trouble. Whereas the working class kids just accepted that if they broke the rules, they would have to either stay in for recess or have a call made home to their parents or that they would get in trouble in whatever form that happened to take. And that led to consequent even though both sets of kids kind of broke rules with relatively the same frequency right. it was who got in trouble and who didn't right. you're listening to interchange on wfhb my guest is jessica calarco assistant professor of sociology at indiana university author of negotiating opportunities how the middle class secures advantages in school and attention is our last one of those that group there attention i found pretty interesting and again made me dislike middle class kids and like the lower cl- uh, there's a there's a pattern here jessica of it's course. sure sure and i mean it's not that the, the middle class kids were, Durr, were, were bad for kids. wanting attention i mean i think sure. I mean, every kid in that classroom wanted the teacher's attention. And these are, these are eight, nine, and ten-year-olds. Yeah, yeah, I keep they're, forgetting that part about yeah, it, too, right? They're, they're elementary school kids. Exactly. Especially, I mean, certainly the book gets a little bit into middle school, but it's mm-hmm. it's mostly these these elementary school kids that just, like, they crave their teacher's attention. And there's too many kids in a class, arguably. Mm-hmm. 25 kids with one teacher with eight-year-olds is arguably too many, yeah. especially because they all need that one-on-one attention. But the problem was that the, the middle-class kids were the ones who kind of felt most entitled to the teacher's attention. And so because of that, they were often the first ones to raise their hands, the first ones to volunteer stories. And so the teachers, because they only had so much time and they had so many kids to get through, they would often privilege kind of the first person to speak up or the person with the more novel story. Um, And because of that, the working class kids often only felt comfortable jumping in with their own stories after somebody else had already raised their hand Mm. and sort of shared something or tried to get attention that way. And because of that, by the time that the working class kids asked for attention or tried to get attention, the teachers had already kind of used up the time that was available Mm. in the curriculum. Well, you also mentioned um, the the way or I guess the type of 
attention mm. that, that they're getting. And that, again, I thought was pretty fascinating. Yeah, in the sense that the, the, the middle class kids really want attention for their individual attributes. Their specialness. They're, they're, yeah, they really right. want to be seen as special and they want to be unique. Um, whereas the working class kids oftentimes wanted to connect with the teachers. They wanted to, to kind of share something, especially with the, with the teachers or sometimes with their classmates as well. They sort of wanted to um, be recognized for a me too kind of a moment and mm -hmm. that, that I feel comfortable um, sharing that, oh, you like strawberries, I like strawberries too. Mm -hmm. Whereas the, the middle class kids really wanted to be, I'm different than everyone else. I need to be recognized for how I'm uh, unique. But again, because of how the teachers only had so much time, they often kind of privileged those unique stories over the ones that were um, uh, 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 the same thing happened to me kind of a story. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it did make, again, it, it makes for a, a very distinct and different kind of kid, and I assume a different kind of adult uh, at some point. Um, it is the same throughout, though. You, you consistently say things like, unlike their middle class peers, working class kids tried to deal with their problems on their own, or if they did seek help, they did so patiently mm. and politely. I don't know that you said the word patient or polite uh, about any of the middle class kids in the in the book. At least not a lot of them. I mean, I mean, certainly <laughs> right. there were variations among both both groups of kids, and there were some there were some kids in the middle class group, especially those, um, interestingly, from like more upwardly mobile backgrounds, uh, that their parents were raised in working class families that took a more sort of moderated approach to this kind of middle class parenting. Mm. Um, and some of them kind of looked a little bit in between the middle class kids and the working class kids. Mm. Um, but certainly, I mean, I think that they they often weren't patient. Um, mm. They often they they knew what they wanted and they knew how to get it, and they knew that they were <laughs> competing against twenty five other kids to get it at the same yeah, time. That, that Maybe it's competing. You've used the word competing a few times. So uh, it is a, a, it's an interesting thing because I imagine it being the thing that we inculcate um, at every turn in the in the society, right? Not just at school, but at every turn in sports and in every conversation. It's about competition. But as you t as you as as I work through the book and as we're talking now, competition doesn't show up in the, in the lower class uh, or working class uh, narrative. Not really, and not in this, and certainly not in the same way that it does among the middle class. That mm. that for them it was about being the best and and being seen as the best right. and kind of being treated as the best. Whereas for the working class kids and for the working class families, it was about having enough to get by. I mean. Mm -hmm. the, when they talked about what they wanted for their kids, it wasn't, I want them to go to the best college or I want them to get the best grades. It was, I want them to do a little better than I'm doing. Uh, mm -hmm. It was, I didn't make it to college or maybe I tried to go to college, but it didn't quite work out for me. And I really hope it works out for my kids. Mm -hmm. It was, I want them to have a little bit more of a comfortable life. Maybe yeah. I don't want them to have a, a job that leaves me them physically tired at the end of the day, uh, that I want them to be happy with what they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was sort of more moderate hopes, more about sort of what kind of life they're going to lead and that they'll be happy in that life and have a, a somewhat easier life than they did. Well, you note at one point, too, that uh, a lot of times the working class kids will uh, patiently wait until they're uh, sure they won't get reprimanded for any kind of, uh, you know, insertion of themselves into the teacher's day. Were they getting rep reprimanded? I mean, were they worrying about because it was true? Sometimes, yeah. Like I was mentioning before, they would oftentimes, because they, they did eventually get frustrated. It's hard to wait patiently forever, yeah. Especially if you're eight or nine years old, yeah. and and so when they did, if they had if they'd been sitting for two or sometimes ten minutes, even in some cases, with their hands raised waiting for the teachers, they would fall off task. Mm -hmm. And so in those cases, that was often when they got in the, trouble. Does the reprimand yeah. hurt more? Mm. Because I'm sure that the middle class kids get reprimanded yes. too, but not in a way that sticks to them. Yes. Right? Is that part of the issue? That's a great point. Yes, absolutely. In the sense that the middle class kids, the teachers would get frustrated with them. Sure. They would sort of say, I mean, there was one middle class kid, the teacher just said like jokingly, but like you're cut off. You're not allowed to ask. You've asked too many questions. You're driving me crazy. Right. Like just stop asking questions. There was one time even when, when a teacher really blew up at his kids, mm. um, at, at his students in his advanced math class and was just so frustrated with them for they were working through a series of um, word problems and the students just wouldn't really work through it and just kept asking for help. And he just went off and he was frustrated and 
and he called them crybabies that didn't want to do the work, and he was angry. <laughs> and the middle-class kids, I mean, they got quiet for a little while, sure. but they just didn't seem phased by it. Whereas all the working-class kids that I talked to that were in that room remembered that situation, internalized that situation, mm. knew that the teacher was frustrated, and really deeply felt not just when they were getting in trouble, but when other kids were getting in trouble too. And mm. so it was just the sense of um, taking in not not even just uh, reprimands that were directed personally at themselves, but just sort of this culture of not wanting the teacher to get upset right. because they felt like that was that was sort of an affront to the teacher, and that that meant mm. that they that they as a class had failed, yeah. and not just themselves. Mm. It's time for our final break. This is Don't Call Us by the 10,000 Maniacs. More with Jessica Calarco on how the middle class wins at school. Stay with us. Support for WFHB comes from The Limestone Post, an independent online magazine covering Bloomington and the surrounding areas. In-depth stories about the arts, environment, social issues, and more. You can discover Limestone Post articles at limestonepost.com. Writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. And support for WFHB also comes from The Uptown Cafe, established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange on WFHB. My guest is Jessica Calarco. We've been discussing the results of her ethnographic research into social and economic hierarchies in a public elementary school in a suburb of a large city on the East Coast or mm-hmm. East, yeah, um, Philadelphia. I can't say for certain for but IRB that's reasons. that's where it is. <laughs> could, it could be. It very it could well be. could You be. never know, right? Anyway, uh, in our previous segments, we've covered a lot of ground, middle class uh, character development, working class character development, the ways in which the middle class uh, tries to earn, uh, earn would be maybe the wrong word, but insert their own needs into the class situation, each kid getting what he or she wants, working class kids patiently waiting to get called on or seen even. Um, so that's, uh, that's um, where we are right now. Now, um, 
Let's talk about some approaches to like reducing these inequalities, right? Reducing, eliminating is not plausible, I would guess, re- reducing them at best. Uh, one of the things you talk about are uh, schools like No Excuses Schools or KIPP. Um, um, there are other things, of course. KIPP I um, dislike very much. But, um, uh, but let's talk a little bit about the ways in which other like programs seek to like help this kind of deficit with the middle class institution. Yeah, and so I would argue that these no excuses schools, KIPP schools, they aim to teach working class kids and and lower income kids to act more like their middle class and upper middle class peers. But I would argue that that approach is is really misguided in a lot of ways in that it it ignores the fact that the working class kids are the ones who are doing their best to try to follow the rules or doing the best to try to be respectful of the institutions. And it also ignores the way that the middle class kids and their families are able to shape the institution and demand these advantages and and are able to do so because of the power of their privilege in the sense that they are only able to get the teacher to, it's not that just by raising your hand or asking for help that that automatically generates advantages for all kids. It's that the the teachers feel compelled to say yes, especially to their requests that go beyond just asking for help. The things like asking for extra accommodations, asking to get out of trouble when they get in trouble, um, asking for extra attention. The teachers feel like they have to say yes to those requests from the middle class kids because they're worried about the consequences of saying no, because they're worried about potential pushback from the middle class parents, especially. They know that there are, that the, the, the school that I observed, the school was very dependent on the middle and upper middle class parents financially, politically for support. And they also, the teachers put themselves at risk when they said no. There was one teacher, uh, Mr. Fisher, I call him in the book, who the teacher, a number of parents started writing letters to the school to ask that the, their kids not be placed in his class because they saw him as what they called unresponsive uh, to, to parent requests and to student mm. requests. And so they, a number of them wrote letters, said, we don't want our kids in Mr. Fisher's class. One mom was kind of on the fence. She's like, oh, I don't know if I really want to do that. And then her kid ended up in Mr. Fisher's class. She actually pulled him out a week uh, into the school year and, and demanded that the principal move her son to a different class for fifth grade. Um, and that was devastating to Mr. Fisher to be sort of judged by parents in this way, to sort of have his professional like credibility question. And it wasn't the kinds of requests that he was denying were not any. It was like he had snack rules where none of the other fifth grade teachers had snack rules about the kinds of snacks that were and he wanted kids to only bring in healthy snacks as opposed <laughs> to things like Oreos. And the parents saw this as unresponsive to their to their kids' needs and desires. Right, right. And so he was essentially blacklisted for that. And so there were these huge risks to the teachers to saying no to the middle class kids and the middle class parents. And these KIPP schools and these other kinds of deficit oriented approaches that just say, oh, we just need to teach the working class kids to act more like their middle class peers. They ignore that power, the power that privilege has in these institutions mm-hmm. to compel the teachers and the institutions, the principals and the superintendents to right. essentially say yes. Yeah, I'm not so sure about KIPP generally, because as far as I can tell, it's generally a, a minority, uh, you know, charter in a sense, right? So it's its primary base is minority students. And it seems generally they're trained to be silent and pay attention, eyes forward, don't move, et cetera. I can't say that those are middle-class behaviors from reading your book, right? Right. They're certainly not the kinds of behaviors right. that I would argue are really what's <laughs> right. getting middle-class kids right. to succeed. Or to get them attention. It just get them to be more quiet. Exactly. Even though they've already been quiet, according. But this is a race question at this point, not a, not a, not a class question in this particular sure. situation. Sure. Especially yeah. within KIPP schools, yes. Yeah. And you'd, you'd make sure to actually not do that kind of, uh, it's not what you w- you did in the book. Right. I'm, I'm focusing mainly on white kids here. And, and, and certainly there 
there are questions that are still left to be answered, but there has been some other research that's found similar patterns with um, even within different racial and ethnic groups mm, as okay. well. Uh, so uh, you, you mentioned deficit-oriented. What, it, what does that mean, really, in, in this situation? Sure. So yeah. when we're talking about sort of deficit-oriented approaches to alleviating inequalities, it's about fixing the people who are at the bottom of the inequality their spectrum. Deficits. Yes. Right. Their, their, their culture is seen right. as deficit or their uh, work ethic is seen as that deficit. It seems pretty bad in the first place exactly. <laughs> to, to say things like exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. And so oh, okay. and some sort of challenge. Okay. I, think, I think one of the goals with the book is to sort of challenge that approach to fixing inequalities and instead to say, how can we rethink the way that our institutions are structured to privilege already privileged people? And how can we potentially make changes to reduce that power of privilege? Maybe it's things like decoupling school funding from property taxes mm -hmm. to make it so that the, the, the privileged parents, the, and especially the white privileged parents, have less power to demand that institutions be responsive to their sure. needs, or, or sort of that the schools are less financially dependent on them. Or maybe it's things like decoupling um, test scores from measures of school quality and certainly not putting measures of school quality on home buying websites like Zillow uh, to make it sort of so to make this sort of this link between property taxes and which schools are good schools and which right. neighborhoods are good neighborhoods all dependent on test scores and on kids grades and on how well kids are doing well this is obviously a tall order as we don't live in the nice society that you're talking about. Sure. It's, I mean, it's certainly not easy. And I think there are small things that we can do in the short term, too, mm. especially in terms of helping teachers to be more aware of these dynamics and especially ha giving, having principals and superintendents back their teachers and especially saying no to the kinds of requests that go well beyond what's fair or required to stick up for uh, to stick up for their teachers and to defend them from the possible pushback or, or inevitable pushback in some cases when when they do say no to these kinds of requests but also to make teachers aware of these class dynamics and especially how working class kids might not feel comfortable asking for help hmm. to help them understand that what looks to them like off-task behavior might really be a student who's struggling to understand the material and who is is feeling uncomfortable about asking for help yeah. or who's been waiting for a long time but you just didn't notice their hand because you had 10 other kids swarming around you for 15 minutes. Yeah, so a lot of what you've written has really caused me to imagine the bulk of what we call even intelligence advantages in middle-class students, in particular middle-class white students, are just a part of um, these kind of helping situations, right, where they're given um, one, two, three legs up in every situation. So they get good grades on tests because they ask for help. Then they go to the class, to the teacher after the test and say, I really get more, I should get more credit for this answer. That kind of stuff happens as well, I know. Um, so, you know, this really would call into question how we even talk about those successful, intelligent, middle-class white kids as opposed to working-class kids, lower-class kids, minority kids, who don't do any of those things. Absolutely, especially when we're thinking about things like grades um, that are so subjective and that, that, that teachers have so much discretion over in terms of who gets what grade, even on a, even on a test, that right. it's not just your marking period grades, but whether you get 100 points or 97 points or 87 points, it can often be determined by the teacher and is, is open right. to that kind of fudging and flexibility. I teach college classes. Certainly, I get plenty of requests at this time of the semester from students who, is there anything I can do? Is there any extra credit I can do to right. get a few more points at the end of the semester? And that's, it's tough as a teacher because you want to help your students and you understand sure. that there's value in asking for help but at the same time you're trying to be to balance that with what's fair to the class as well, a whole. Does it call into question school in general right the idea of how we we operate it in the first place grading systems etc how long now we've we been talking about de-schooling how long have people talked about the the fact that it does replicate and reproduce these particular inequalities that's and that's its goal. Absolutely. No, I, and I think that does it does 
encourage us to think about how we need to restructure the way that we do schooling and especially the emphasis that we put on things like grades. I have a project I'm working on now that's, that's about homework um, and specifically arguing that really that the whole way that we do homework in schools is just designed to punish marginalized kids, mm. uh, especially working class kids and Latino kids and black kids who are um, who don't have oftentimes the, the parents who are able to provide the same level of support at home. Um, and that the teachers, they often say, I want the kids to uh, be independent with homework, but they ultimately end up privileging kids who get more support with their, from their parents at home and mm. that how that kind of plays out in terms of which kids get punished and which kids get rewarded, especially for things like homework, that if we just did away with it, it might be a little bit more of an equal system. Sounds good to me. That's our show. We'll close with Raise Your Hand by Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. Thanks to Jessica Calarco for sharing her work with us. Again, it's hard not to say, of course, when you hear about it, but it leaves you a little stymied at how deeply entrenched the practices are of these middle-class parents and students and how much they color our social, economic, and political lives. Thanks, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. Again, Jessica Calarco is the author of Negotiating Opportunities, How the Middle Class Secures Advantages in School, published by Oxford University Press. If you enjoyed this program, you can find more like it online at wfhb.org slash interchange. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Wes Martin is executive producer and was also our studio engineer for tonight's live conversation. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next on WFHB.